Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. An Erio's original. But then after I kind of really nailed the characters, I asked myself a really interesting question. And that was, okay, well, now that you know who these guys are, what do you want to do? It's taking over my dreams, waking me out of my sleep. I think I'm coming apart. Hi, this is Margaret Cho. You're listening to The Margaret Cho. Today, we have an incredible guest. It is the Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, coming out of the dark. Oh. I'm so excited you're here. I'm so excited to be here in palatial uh, Margaret Cho Estates. <laughs> well, you know, I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't think you've been here before because you used to come and visit me in uh, Beechwood Canyon. That was... I actually had somebody come up to me who thought I lived there because I used to visit you so much. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. They, they saw me leaving the place. So you live up on Beach? No, no, that's a friend of mine. I for- forever associate us watching movies in my. Uh, living room that was sort of a dining room i can see that living room right now yes then when i was watching uh django i remembered some things i remember that we had watched um what was the one it was it mandingo with perry king yeah 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 mandingo yeah we watched it twice yeah right (laughs) like we we got to the end and then we watched it in the beginning yeah the movie was real contraband right and you really responded to it it was incredible Mm -hmm. and then um but every once in a while like if i'm watching your movies i will recognize something or recognize a feeling and for um once upon a time in hollywood i guess we think about like actors like that were around in that era and i was trying to think of like who were you thinking of like i I don't know why but i was like for rick dalton yeah he represents uh, a whole plethora of actors that were in particularly in uh, 1969, kind of um, being washed over by the zeitgeist wave. Yes, yes. All right, uh, in a way that they never would have uh, had, you know, they never would have had it even under any understanding of it, even uh, two years earlier. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is they were all actors, this group in particular, were actors that had some sort of a, a, a success on television Yes. Uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And became genuine TV stars. I mean, big name thing, big name stars. And then when their shows ended, uh, either they they plugged them, either they no no I'm going to own this TV thing, mm-hmm. and they plugged themselves into a bunch of TV movies or plugged themselves into another series, or they like f this TV business. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to make movies. Yeah. 
And uh, you know, and some of them pulled that off. Uh, Steve McQueen, James Garner, um, Clint Eastwood. Those guys kind of pulled it off. But a lot of them didn't. But they had their they had their time. Yes. They had their time. Um, and so, you know, he kind of fits into the group of actors that tried to pull that off and didn't quite pull it off. And that would be people like um, uh, George Maharis mm -hmm. from uh, Route 66, mm -hmm. um, uh, Ed Burns. Mm -hmm. All right, with uh, uh, 77 Sunset Strip, Clint Walker to some degree, yeah. you know, with uh, uh, the show Cheyenne, Ty Harden with the show Bronco. They all had, they all had their time. Mm -hmm. But the thing about it, though, was they were taught to be strong, masculine he-men. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That was that was their thing. I mean, they literally spent their entire careers up until this point running pocket combs through their pompadours. Right, right. You know, and the idea of not wearing a pompadour was just, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? How, yeah, do, how is a man crazy. supposed to wear his hair? Yeah, All right. exactly. All right. And so, uh, and they were also, because they learned their lessons from television really, really well. They were all told, all taught that they had to be likable. Mm -hmm. that that was an important thing, especially for television. Like, well, why the hell would anybody lift you into their living room? Yes. Um, unless we like you. Yes. And so they're actually, they were like crazy kind of story conscious mm -hmm. about where if something were to, uh, something happens in a script and, you know, uh, they would be the first guys mm -hmm. to say, uh, you know, not the studio or anybody. Well, wait a minute, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, the audience's not going to like me. Mm -hmm. They're not uh -huh. going to dig me. They're going to hate right, me. Right, right. No one's going to hate me. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, so, I mean, so to them, this was just how Hollywood was going. It's how it always had been. Mm -hmm. And as far as they were concerned, how it always was going to be. But then starting in 67, the kind of uh, youth ca uh, counterculture movement happens. Right. And so by 69, when mm -hmm. this movie takes place, by 69, all those pompadoured uh, wearing sport coats with patches on the sleeves uh, mm -hmm. guys... They're all gone. And who's taken their place is, for the most part, the hippie sons of famous people. Right. <laughs> right. right. So it's Peter Fonda. Mm -hmm. It's uh, 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 Michael, the young Michael Douglas. Right. Uh, Arlo Guthrie starring in movies. Yes. Young David Carradine, very hippie-ish. Right? Right, right. You know, is, star, uh, is starring in stuff. Robert Walker Jr. is, is making hippie movies. And but so so all of a sudden, yeah, David Cassidy, mm. you know. So the thing is, all of a sudden, as opposed to being a football playing, pompadour wearing, handsome leading man, you know, he-man. Now the uh, uh, the new leading men of Hollywood were skinny androgynous types. Right. right. You know they were skinny, shaggy haired. You, from a distance, you couldn't quite tell if they were a girl or a boy. Mm -hmm. And when you actually got closer to them, damn, they were prettier than most women you saw. I mean, yes. Christopher Jones looked fucking gorgeous, yes. right, with his long hair. And uh, but whether it be you know uh, um, him or like I said, Michael Douglas or or, or uh, uh, Christopher Tabori, who was actually Don Siegel's son, they were the leading men mm -hmm. of the time. And now if these guys were going to get an, uh, were going to get a shot, they're going to probably play like you know the cop busting them. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, <laughs> giving yes. them a hard time. So they just literally just kind of found themselves outside of uh, outside of the industry. And, but not only that, it, so that's just their work potential. But they're even looking at an industry that they couldn't even understand. Right. All right. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, if Rick, maybe from the end of the movie on, mm -hmm. he has a little bit more awareness mm -hmm. that he'd be a little bit more open to things. Yeah. But, but like a couple years before, like if it would never happen. Mm -hmm. But if he got offered the Joe Buck part in uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy. Goes, mm. I'm not going to play that fucking guy. Right, right. <laughs> 
the fag comes over to him and he's kind of cool with it. I'm not going to play some fag. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm play a male prostitute? What the fuck is that about? Yeah, yeah. No one wants to see that shit. Right. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like I wanted to keep wearing the white hats and going to Europe was kind of a question like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Oh, and- well, now, well, that was even a whole other thing though because that was like, that was just xenophobia. They're like, right. oh, these fucking Italians, they don't know yeah. what the fuck they're doing. I mean, we think TV's bad enough. <laughs> that's a bunch of crap over there right you know now you ask me they're making some of the greatest movies it's ever the made greatest movies but they were yeah, it's definitely xenophobia and this fear yeah. of like the other or like going and leaving hollywood yeah it's, and i don't think it's fear of the other in their case i think it's just disdain for right. the other i mean right. it's like what these dagos making spaghetti westerns what the fuck is that that's just that's beyond ridiculous mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and then now and and now i don't agree with that no but having said that that when you actually hear how some of those movies were made you can understand them going what kind of wackadoo shit is this because yeah. uh, um, Burt Reynolds will talk about doing one of my favorite movies is uh, Navajo Joe mm-hmm. uh, directed by Sergio Capucci and you know and the way they did a lot of these movies is the Italian movies they dubbed them all later so they were done without sound mm-hmm. so but part of the reason they were done that way is so they could u- utilize actors from all over Europe mm-hmm. so thus if you're an American mm-hmm. in Italy or Almeria Spain doing your film then your leading lady could be Spanish. Mm-hmm. The main bad guy could be Italian. The other main bad guy, the, the head the head bandito could be German. Right. You know, and, and maybe there's another American in there. And so the point being is you learned your dialogue. Mm-hmm. They spoke, the Italian spoke Italian. The mm-hmm. Spaniard spoke Spanish. And the German spoke German. And you just knew when it was your time to talk. Yes. <laughs> so it was yes. this whole Tower of Babel yeah. you know, style of acting. Um really did they didn't see that but there i mean there was even kind of a xenophobia i even heard old time guys back at the back when i was 17 guys like uh uh, um uh like james best who i Mm -hmm. uh, was a teacher of mine in an acting school who played uh roscoe coltrane on dukes of hazard Mm -hmm. well he was in a lot of like guested on a lot of westerns in in those days and appeared in westerns and stuff i remember telling him that i (laughs) <laughs> that one of my favorite performances was was Dean Martin in um, Rio Bravo. Yes, and his attitude was like, "Fucking spaghetti benders and goddamn, oh. goddamn, they ruined that movie putting that fucking Italian in there." Oh, <laughs> I mean that's literally what they. I mean we're yeah. not even talking about spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, "Fucking Dean Martin ruined Rio Bravo putting that fucking <laughs> Italian in there." Forget about Frankie Avalon dying at the fucking Alamo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that was just kind of where they were coming from but even I had a, even had a section it's not in um, the script but I kind of really worked out Rick's whole career plan Pam. yeah yeah and so I had one kind of movie like that, that he got offered oh good yeah yeah so the thing is when I went through Rick's career mm-hmm. that he went to you know post bounty law it was almost always the same kind of situation kind of older established cowboy guy with him new mm-hmm. cowboy guy yeah yeah so it's like glenn ford and him yeah and robert taylor and him or george montgomery and him and that always bugged him but uh when his uh, when this contract finally ran out i i wrote it because i wrote this as a i first started writing it as, as a book so i have a whole chapter about this he was actually pursued at one point by roger corman oh wow that's great that's yeah. great now he doesn't appreciate that but yeah. we appreciate yeah, we that. Love that i love <laughs> we, that we appreciate that so the thing is corman always kind of like saw him on his show bounty law mm-hmm. you know he had a good eye for talent right you know he knew he would be good mm-hmm. uh he's gonna kind of wait till his career starts going on a little bit more downwards mm-hmm. you know sphere so he can afford him more and maybe yeah. 
some of that snot will be out of his nose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was Corman had this smash. I believe it was in 60, uh, it might be 67, but I think it was 66. He had this smash with the movie, uh, The Wild Angels mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Peter Fonda. Yeah. And that was, and it was actually a big thing for Corman. It actually played at the Venice Film Festival. It kind of gave him a, a, a different level of respect. Right. He had never made a zeitgeist movie. Uh -huh. He didn't ever made a movie that like Time Magazine yeah, would like yeah. write about as a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. But he also knew he did something else being the, the canny man he was is like, oh shit, I didn't just make a hit movie. I created an entire genre. Ooh, mm -hmm. I mean, there's going to be 20 of these fucking things yeah, yeah. by next year. Mm -hmm. Well, Corman's going to be damned if he's going to let somebody else uh -huh. get through the door. You know, like the next one that gets through the door is going to be the one that does really well. Yeah. So I, that's got to be fucking mine. Mm -hmm. Well, he doesn't have enough time mm -hmm. to write a whole new script from scratch. So what he does is he goes to his screenwriter, Charles Griffith, the guy who wrote A Bucket of Blood and Little Shop mm -hmm. of Horrors, mm -hmm. who, and who wrote Wild Angels. He goes, okay, we don't have enough time to write a whole new movie from scratch, so we're just going to do a paraphrase remake. Mm. <laughs> just take the characters from The Wild Angels, make enough changes that it's not a direct remake, <laughs> but we're just doing it over again yeah. with, with different with different characters. Yeah. So just change it enough, but not so much that I'm waiting for your fucking script. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they did that. And so uh, uh, the next one out of the gate was a movie called The Devil's Angels. Mm -hmm. So in my scenario, Corman offered um, uh, Rick The Devil's Angels mm -hmm. to be the lead, leader, yeah. the leader of the gang. And actually, if that would have happened, that would have been a big thing mm -hmm. for Rick. One, one of his, other than 14 Fist of McCluskey, <laughs> one of his movies would have like done well. Right. All right. Not only would it have done well, I mean, did really well, frankly. He would have been the lead, you know, Rick mm -hmm. Dalton in yeah. The Devil's Angels. So it's not him and somebody else. Mm -hmm. And his whole dilemma is like, well, who the fuck? These young kids don't know who the fuck I am. I'm a man out of time. Mm -hmm. This actually would have been a vaguely new Hollywood movie. This would have been a mm -hmm. movie that would have actually catered to to the zeitgeist. Yeah. It would have catered to young people. It would have yeah. catered to the youth movement mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, the rest of his movies that kind of catered to 1962. Yeah. And, well... Naturally, he turns it down. Uh-huh. Yeah, because oh, American International, oh, that's just junk. Uh -huh. Oh, shit. No, TV's better than that. That's that mm -hmm. B-movie crap. Oh, my fuck, my movies play at the drive-ins. Fuck that shit. And mm. by the way, I read this whole thing. This is just nothing but sex and violence. Who the fuck wants to see this crap? <laughs> All right. So he turns it down, turns it down so dismissively that Corman says, okay, fuck you. He's never asked, never mm -hmm. offers him anything again. But who does accept the part in The Devil's Angels? John Cassavetes. Oh, wow. And so so John Cassavetes had, you know, was nominated for an Oscar for Dirty Dozen. Mm -hmm. uh, he takes Devil's Angels and his next movie is Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. Like a part Rick would chew his lip off right. to get the John Cassavetes role yeah. in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. And, but, but he doesn't see the connection. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see the correlation. Right. Because he's just too narrow-minded. Yeah. That was... 
crazy long monologue about no, no, the, I love the history it. of Rick's career. I only, love it. Only because I know it so well. No, like, I think that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's really, to think about it, like I think that maybe he probably would have gotten a part or offered something in Earthquake yeah. or like one of those like early 70s like disaster uh, movies. Okay, I think, you're, I think you're shooting a little high for him for Earthquake. He would definitely be in some of the TV. You oh, know, yeah. That, you know, SST, the disaster flight or, uh, you know, something like that. He would, I'm actually a big fan of those TV movies. 70s I do too. I like it too. TV disaster movies. So he could have, he would have definitely been in one of those. Yes. Right? Isn't there one that's like incident on I-5? There was like oh one... yeah, uh, inter- yeah, uh, 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 smash up on Interstate Five. Yeah, with, uh, uh, actually uh, with um, Robert Conrad, but a very very young uh, Tommy Lee Jones is in it. Oh wow, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean there was sort of like maybe it it's not Poseidon Adventure, but like that's from something that like I sort of see him like at the helm of, or maybe like maybe later in the eighties he would be offered like Hotel or the voice of Charlie on Charlie's Angels. Well yeah, well, so, well, no, well no, there is actually is a, a again. There, I, I've got this sort of planned out. I mean, the thing is, there's a few things post what happens at the house. Mm-hmm. All right. That I'm, I'm, I'm not cagey about talking about the ending now. But right. If you haven't seen okay. it now, fuck you. Yeah. All right. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you haven't been paid to see it now, then you, you deserve to have the ending ruined exactly, for you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, there's a few different ways. Mm-hmm. His career could have gone, and I and I've, I kind of mo- and, and depending on who you kind of hitch your horse to, yes, all right, of who he's representing, mm-hmm. you know, you go, oh, it could, it could be this way, it could be that way, the George Maharis way is this way, the Ty Harden way is that way, and I think there's kind of a combination of a few of them. But what could easily have happened, even if he had had a little bit more success in the 70s, mm-hmm. than maybe I give him credit for, what I could really see happen because it happened to a lot of these guys is by the late 70s, early 80s, a lot of these macho 50s, 60s television leading men, they showed up on TV shows again, but as so, as as the older cop. Right. All right, right. To the, you know, who's like the boss, mm-hmm. the boss of uh, the younger cop mm-hmm. that sends them out on the, the missions, you know, kind of the Dobie character from uh, Starsky and Hutch. Mm-hmm. No, not not Bernie Hamilton, per se, yeah. you yeah. know, but that that guy. Mm-hmm. All right. And so if you look at it, OK, there was like, a, a, you know, Earl Holloman has is that kind of guy. And he mm-hmm. had that character on Policewoman. Mm-hmm. You know, he was his, her, her boss, sends around on the missions on Get Christy Love. Uh, uh, Jack Kelly, who used to be on Maverick, was was Christy Love's boss. Right. On uh, David Cassidy had his show, David Cassidy Undercover. Mm-hmm. Vic, uh, uh, Vince Edwards, Ben Casey, was his boss. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And there was even a, a cop show that was kind of like a very uh, Starsky and Hutchie kind of show called Bad Cats. Uh-huh. B-A-D Cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they got into car chases all the time. And like Vic Morrow, all oh, right, yeah, was yeah. their boss. Mm-hmm. So I could definitely see. Yeah. You know, Rick Dalton in like 78. Yeah. You know, being one of those like guys. Like bossing uh, Randolph Mantooth around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Martin Milner. Yeah. That's him, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Martin Milner is more, his, is more his generation. I guess so. so. It would, yeah, so it would be like, you know, it would be guys in their late 20s. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. That's great. I mean, Young Don Johnson. Yeah. Like when you watch him, it's sort of also the end of like Western TV shows in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, because uh-huh. that sort of, that genre really kind of went away after what is it like well no there's actually no, no it's interesting that you're even pointing that out because the show that we have him on lancer which is a mm-hmm. real show mm-hmm. and it came out in 68 i fudged it a little bit mm-hmm. um but that was actually that was actually a fairly progressive show mm-hmm. for its time but that is absolutely 
definitively like the last show that still fits into that 60s era. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a little bit more progressive than like say uh, uh, um, Bonanza or something like that. It's right. a little closer to High Chaparral mm-hmm. where it's a little bit more violent. Mm-hmm. You know, the character of Johnny Madrid is, is a, a little more dubious. Yeah. You know, and they kind of play that up a little bit and had a lot of really cool guest stars like Bruce Dern, all right, he was in my yeah. movie, like yeah. the two Lancers. Yeah. Um, but by 1970, it was different. Like, so you actually had two two big Western TV shows that were phenomena hits mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s, but they don't have an umbilical, umbilical cord mm-hmm. to the 60s stuff. Mm-hmm. They actually have a fresher, newer sense. Yeah. And that was uh, Alias Smith and Jones mm-hmm. and Kung Fu. Okay. Yes, that's true. Yes. And they were, they were zeitgeist shows. Right, right. They were de- definitely different. I mean, there's different. like, there's this famous story of uh, Elvis being late on stage. Mm-hmm. On, for a Saturday night concert because uh-huh. he started watching an episode of Kung Fu in his dressing room <laughs> and he had to see how it ended. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love that. Like so it, was a, it was on Saturday night. So mm-hmm. it's like it's Saturday night. They're yeah. waiting 20 extra minutes for Elvis to come on stage. Right, right. That's amazing. That's incredible. I, I always like forget that Kung Fu is a Western show. Like yeah. for some reason, I mean, maybe because it's really, it, it's sort of, it is kind of a martial arts show too. So that seems it's more like a chop sock like sake well, thing. it definitely fits. It definitely well, it definitely fits in that, and is that, and for all intents and purposes, you know, created the popularity of that for America. Right, right. You know, we were late to the game. Yeah, right? you know, but yes. as far as like the America phenomena of it, it was that show mm-hmm. that really bursted it open, and then particularly even the as popular as the show was was that original TV movie mm. that really became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you you forget about it until you actually watch the show. No, it's yes. a Western show with all these like right. cool West William Smith and all these cool Western guys you mm-hmm. you've seen show up on all these shows. Yes, <laughs> yes. Was did did David Carradine have a sense of that Kane? Was he still kind of Kane when you worked with him? Well, yeah. Well, it was interesting because um, had a weird situation where it was like um, when I was writing Kill Bill, I indoctrinated myself in so much like martial art movies and especially Hong Kong martial art movies and, mm-hmm. and Japanese samurai movies. Yeah, yeah. Like to such a degree for like a long period, like six or seven months, mm-hmm. that it was like, like they were the only movies ever made. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so nothing else really existed. Like movies were kung fu movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and But I kind of wanted to get that 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 uh, uh, tunnel vision frame of reference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and that kind of uh, weird wonderful kind of almost uh, uh when you watch the the hong kong shaw brothers movies and you see them dubbed in english yeah that we're kind of almost a lisa elizabethan dialogue oh yeah that yeah. they that they've adopted to, yeah. to to pull it off into english which mm-hmm. i actually think is actually quite beautiful it actually is, it it, is. it's terrific and there is an aspect where it's like um now it's easy to get see all the Shaw Brothers stuff in, in, in the original Cantonese. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But if you also grew up with the American dubs, you love those yeah, equally as well. All right. And you yeah. love the you love that. Well, no, that I like that guy's voice. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> you know, he does all five of those voices. And uh-huh. I, I love I love him. Uh, and they all have that kind of Kiwi accent because I think they did them all. In, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. Hi, I've of White Lotus Mountain since the pre- since the lead of the White Lotus Clan, Pai Mai, who some fear is a devil and some worship as a god. Neither were wrong. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was a, that's a weird kind of Kiwi accents that yeah. they all had. Yeah. If you want to fight, you fight me. Yeah. But one of the things is in watching the TV show Kung Fu and kind of learning, reading about it, 
I actually ended up having this weird thing where, and I asked David about this and he explained it to me about how it worked. For American television to try to do a show that, you know, to one degree or another deals with Buddhism mm -hmm. and to actually get it as right as they do in the, in the flashback scenes, yeah. uh, you know, to the temple, that's kind of remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So many of the parables mm -hmm. that Cain, uh, uh, you know, uh, brings up or Cain uses, or it's like, you know, you see him in the world and then mm -hmm. he watches a situation happen and then, it re then reminds him of being in the Shaolin temple where they yeah. taught him a parable about how to deal yes. with, you know, the frailty of, uh, of humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't have to react to it, but just know it, know it for what it is. Observe it. And so he sees some cowboy being mean to another cowboy and then he remembers, yes. you know, the parable of the, of, you know, of the grasshopper mm -hmm. <laughs> and or the dragonfly. Running or across the rice paper. Did yeah, he have the run across rice paper? Oh, yeah. That so was like, well, that was once he achieved his It was like, cheap. so all of those things yeah. that he had to do to like just get to that place was like really difficult. Well, I asked him, I go, uh, you know, because I really, really think those, those temple scenes are really fantastic and then you have an actor like key luke who plays who plays oh, yeah, the blind great. master yeah, pose just one of the great he's actors of, of hollywood yeah so i asked him about where those these you know i mean the parables just really worked i started collecting them a little bit and i was like damn this actually really works mm -hmm. and he said it was interesting he goes, well, he goes they're not shaolin temple they're not shaolin temple teachings he goes mostly they're Confucianism. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he goes like we took a little bit from American Indians. We mm -hmm. took a little bit from the. We we took about for whatever worked. Yeah. All right, but if you slice it all up, mostly eighty percent of what Cain teaches or what they teach young Cain mm -hmm. is Confucianism. Yeah. And I go okay, so well, well, who did those? He goes, well, that was the thing. So we had our own writers, and only our writers were allowed to write. Uh, the temple sequences, mm. the temple sequence flashbacks. Yeah. We, they were the only ones that really knew what they're doing. Now, we would accept scripts from outdoor, from outside people who just wrote, wanted to, you know, who were famous, well-known episodic television writers that, that pitched us a good idea for a Kane story. And they all wanted to write the Shaolin temple scenes. Mm -hmm. And they all wrote the Shaolin temple scenes. And we always threw them out. Uh -huh. <laughs> Only our guys could actually do the Shaolin temple scenes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's so great. But a weird interesting thing about that, though, is it, you know, um, it kind of started affecting me a little bit. Where it's like, you know, the whole, you know, the whole Shaolin monk thing of, or Buddhist monk thing of, you know, when you put on your sandals, mm -hmm. you know, you make a small prayer for the ants mm. that you will tread upon yeah. and kill, yeah. you know, and like, you know, and the, the, you know they are martyrs. They don't mm -hmm. need, they don't, uh, you didn't mean to do it, but you do it nevertheless. Yes. That kind of philosophy started kind of getting to me a little bit. And mm. I n noticed that I, I have a lot of bees on my property mm -hmm. it's just like bees have just made beehives everywhere you can yeah. kind of make a beehive and, yeah. and uh like gardeners that come oh we'll, we'll we'll get rid of these these beehives no no they're fine they're mm -hmm. not hurting anybody they're just great leave mm -hmm. them alone and uh so i have a lot of bees and literally so there's beehives on the hill but like i've got a a big wall that separates my property from a couple other properties and the bees have actually you know, made a home inside of the wall. I mean, yeah. I, if I were to go to the wall with a sledgehammer, I'm sure I'd get a shitload of honey. But I kind of like the fact that, like, the bees like the place and they yeah. like me and yeah. I'm happy with them and, and there's pretty flowers and it's just all really nice. Anyway, I started noticing, because I keep my pool hot, I started noticing that 
bees would like land on the pool and they would, you know, they die because mm-hmm. it's like, I, I guess for a bee, it's just like, you know, uh, the heat of the pool and the wetness of the mm-hmm. pool is just, is, is, is intoxicating to them. Yes. I mean, it's yes. so intoxicating, even though they know they could die, they right. cannot stop themselves. Right. So like their idea is to kind of hover above the pool and what they're trying to do is dip their body. Mm. And it just enough to feel the wetness. Now, if they mm-hmm. do it just a little bit too much, then their wings yes. get stuck in the water and that's when they die. Uh-huh. So I started like, you know, you go up, get up. I, either I'm in my pool or I'm walking around the pool and I see the bee, bzzz, you know, stuck on the water, just kind of doing his little lily, pa- lily pad thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's a goner. Mm-hmm. And so then I started saving them. Literally, again, mm-hmm. thinking about this Canish philosophy. Oh, yeah. All right. And I, so I started saving them. At first, I was really careful. I was like, make a big puddle in my hand and catch them and throw mm-hmm. them over the side. Or I'd pick a branch or a leaf or some uh-huh. big, big ass leaf or something and get them on that, flip them over. Then after a point in time, I just wasn't scared of them. Yeah. And I just started picking them up with my hand. Oh. And I would just, I would, I'd just pick them up with my hand and they would just kind of walk around on my finger and mm-hmm. everything. And if it was like too long, I'd flick them off because I was bored with it. Yeah. All right. They didn't hurt them. I just, I saved them. All right. But okay, enough of this. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the, the parts that was always coolest was in there just kind of walking all over my finger and walking all over the hand. And then all of a sudden, then their wings kind of uh, uh, dry up enough that they can leave. And then like, like I'm Cinderella, you know, oh, and then yeah. you know, Cinderella just puts her hand out and like the birds are on it. Yeah. You know? And all of a sudden, boom, he just flies away. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> his, his, his wings got dry and he flew away. Okay, bye-bye, Quentin. <laughs> and, and he flew away. And then I even got to even, I even got to even thinking, well, it's not impossible that these bees would even know who I am at mm-hmm. a certain point. I mean, they're all going back to the same hive. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure they're probably telling some story. I'm sure they told somebody. About the, yeah, about the yeah. big guy who's actually down with them. Yeah, that's you know? great. And apparently bees even like have a situation where they like, uh, you know, they know what's a threat to the hive uh-huh. and they know it's not a threat to the yeah. hive. And so they don't see me as a threat and so they've actually prospered. But but, but the kind of the whole concept of the, you know, praying for the ant that you're going to step on. Mm-hmm. That I kind of took from, you know, this aspect of it at all was just the idea that um, if you're going to be put into a situation where you're God, mm-hmm. I can decide if something lives or dies, then you owe it to the world to try to be a benevolent God. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> now, I don't feel that way about mosquitoes, but. but well, uh, mosquitoes are uh, bloodsuckers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's but, just but, horrible. But I try to put that, even when it comes to <laughs> flies, I try to put that forth to, other, to the other beautiful. insect community. <laughs> I think it's really good. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
Well, what I think is like so beautiful about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that you're paying attention to the people around Rick Dalton, which is, of course, Brad Pitt, who to me is very... Um, every flower has a gardener, yeah. you know? So every star has that person. And that's I've never seen a movie relationship uh, in not that like it is in this movie, but context. it's one of those things I mean, where it's like, I, since like I've this. done it, you know, I'd be like, oh man, I work with Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges has that guy. Yeah, and yeah. He's been with Jeff Bridges since Rancho Deluxe. Yeah. <laughs> everybody does. Yeah, everybody. And Chris Christopher, he has that guy. Yeah. <laughs> John Travolta has a few of those guys that yeah, look yeah. just like him. They're always a stand-in. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. They're always, or stunt double. Mm-hmm. But or were one at some yeah, point, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and then became assistants or something. Like yeah, that. yeah. Well, you know, uh, um, you know, Kurt Russell had a guy like that too. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was a situation where, um, where I first came up with that aspect of it was, I was on a movie, and I was working with a, a, a an actor of that ilk, mm-hmm. and uh, I was directing the film, and uh, the actor, uh, uh, the actor comes to me. And he goes, uh, look, I haven't bothered you about this because there's really nothing, you know, uh, for him to do on this movie. Mm-hmm. However, there is that one punch scene where the uh-huh. guy gets punched and knocked on the ground. Yeah. So I have a guy. Uh-huh. And uh, he's been with me for a long time. And like I said, I haven't bugged you about it because there's not really anything for him. But he could do that. Yeah, yeah. He could do that. So if if uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you mind flying him in so I mm-hmm. could just kind of give him a little bit of you know give yeah. him a couple of days work, mm-hmm. you know? Go, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Go ahead, you know. And so the guy showed up, and it was you could tell it was one of those things where it was probably going to be only maybe this and maybe one other movie. Mm-hmm. The actor would get away mm-hmm. with being able to use the stunt guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they had all they'd both gotten older. Mm-hmm. You know, the stunt guy really didn't look like him that much anymore. Mm-hmm. They'd kind of grown out in a lot. He wasn't fat, but he was just dude, become an older guy. Yeah, but you could tell that there was a time. Mm. That they could have practically shot close-ups of the stunt guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it would have just fit like you know, just fit in step. So we hire the guy, and uh, and he's fine. He does his whole thing. And it's funny because I always talk to stunt guys like they're actors. Yeah. You know, so in that vein, mm-hmm. he does his big fall on the concrete. And it was one of those things where it was like, uh, he's supposed to get kicked and he falls on the concrete. We keep trying to avoid actually hitting him, but mm-hmm. the angle is such that you can't avoid it. Yeah. And then finally, like the guy says, look, just kick me in the face. I can't fall on this concrete any longer. That's uh-huh. what's killing me. Yeah. So just kick me in the face. And get it over with. Yeah. So, okay, cool. So we did that. Anyway, we we, put, we did it and it looked really good and felt good on the day. And so I go to him. I go, so were you happy with that? Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course I was happy with it. Yeah, so you, you feel good about it? Mm-hmm. Again, just talking to him like he's an actor. Yeah. He goes, and he refers to the actor. He goes, well, if he's happy, I'm happy. Yeah. And it was kind of, and it was funny because like, oh, he's not really working for me. Yeah, yeah. He's working for the other guy. Right. I mean, no, nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. but that was an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. But then also, just even him being on the set, I don't talk to him that much, but I see him sitting in a director chair talking to the actor. Mm-hmm. And they're both dressed in the identical costumes. Yeah. 
And it's one of the things I actually wish I had had in, 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 in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like, it's like some moment with them on one of their sets where they're both right. dressed in identical costumes. Exactly, yeah. You know, and uh, with uh, Cliff wearing his Rick wig, mm-hmm. you know, as they shoot the shit. But uh, I'm sitting there watching them dress in their identical costumes, uh, sitting in director's chairs, shooting the shit all day mm-hmm. like they've done for 12 years. Yeah. If not more. Yeah. And watching that, like from across the set, just that tableau. Mm-hmm. I was like, huh, I've never done a movie about Hollywood, but if I ever do, that could be a really interesting relationship. Right. That could be a very interesting way in. Yeah, yeah, because it's like the, um, he absorbs all of Rick's like anxiety and he can calm him. He gets him to the set. Like there's always like a drive. One person's going to drive. Yeah. And um, there's a kind of softness that's around it. And then, you know, it, it's almost like a tiny kingdom, you know, with like one king and one yeah, servant, yeah. you know, one person in the land. So it's really, I mean, it's really interesting, but it's also really like, it's familiar. Yeah, but, well, there's also this aspect of it when you're t- dealing with the, um, you know, with the three principles, uh, Rick, uh, Sharon, and Cliff, mm-hmm. is they all represent three different social stratas. Yes, inside of Hollywood. You know, Sharon is a huge time comer. Yeah. You know, she's on on the lip of great success and mm-hmm. and and literally living the high life right. of 1969 Hollywood. Yeah. And she has the house to show for it, she has the nightlife to show for it, yeah. she has the the close circle of friends to show for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and again, it's not just, you know, Clark Gable, Lana Turner time. That kind of zeitgeist of Hollywood means that you're also best friends with the rock stars. Right. And you're best friends with the famous authors. Yeah. You know, so she's hanging out with Joan Didion mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and probably Jasper Johns. And pursued by Steve McQueen. Yeah, and pursued by Steve McQueen. Good. Really yeah. great friends with yeah. uh, Michelle and John Phillips. Yeah. And, you know, Joni Mitchell. I mean, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's everybody. the best. Yeah. Here, here comes everybody. It's counterculture <laughs> and regular culture and high culture. It's yeah, everything. It's, it, yeah, it's just, it's culture. Yeah. I enjoyed really what I loved was just that moment of her in the theater watching herself and thinking that is just such a beautiful thing of like how innocent and exciting that is to just yeah. go by yourself to a movie theater and right. be recognized and I really appreciated that for her. Well, that's one of my favorite parts of the of 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 the whole movie because the whole idea with Sharon was I mean, the, the, kind of it's the whole idea of the whole movie. There's not really a story mm-hmm. in the movie. I worked on the idea of the characters for a long, long time. And at one point or another, I had more of a melodramatic story. Yeah. That I could have made a, a Rick and uh, um, Rick and Cliff walk to. Mm-hmm. Kind of more of like an Elmer Leonardy mm-hmm. kind of thing. And they almost seem like Elmer Leonard characters yeah, in a yeah. way to some yeah. degree. Yeah. So you can imagine them mm-hmm. in some, you know... You know, some you know, nefarious predicament yes. <laughs> that they get themselves in and they have to get themselves out of. But then after I kind of really nailed the characters, I asked myself a really interesting question. Uh, uh, I had to ask myself a really interesting question. And that was, okay, well, now that you know who these guys are, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. What what kind of story do you want to tell? Mm-hmm. So it's not just what I can do. Yeah. What do I want to do? Yeah. And I thought about it and I thought, huh, I think these characters are strong enough. I think both the characters are strong enough and the milieu that mm-hmm. I'm creating, the world that I'm creating is strong enough that I don't think I even need a story. 
mm-hmm. I think I can just go a day in the life. Yeah. Yeah. And then it doesn't have to take place over six or seven days in order to mm-hmm. get a story going. It can literally just take place in two days. Yeah. And then we can literally get shut, uh, cut to it a third day later. Mm-hmm. Um, but just it can just take place in these two days. And then in both dealing with Sharon and Rick and and, uh, and Cliff, it's just whatever happens to them mm-hmm. in those two days. Now, the encounters that they have, I think, will build up a meaning. Yes, yeah. And I do have the murders looming on the horizon. Yes, yes. So it's a ghoulish uh, story motor right right but it's a story motor nevertheless yeah it really is you always know it's 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 always it's coming. there yeah it's coming it's always there and you know and every scene gets you you know whether you want to or not gets you a little closer to it yeah yeah but with that in mind then it was a situation well like i'm not going to make it that Sharon is hanging out with Rick and hanging out with Cliff. Mm-hmm. They got to get to know each other later. I yeah, mean, that's of course, the, well, of that's where that's the, that's the other shoe mm-hmm. that drops. I mean, you know, he, he, he doesn't know her. I mean, that yeah. would be the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. to actually be friends with your next door neighbor. But you mm-hmm. know, in Hollywood, you can live next door to somebody seven years. Yeah, and you haven't met anybody on your block, right? right? Unless you just happen to, yeah. unless you're mad at them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh, they're building some fucking shit. Yeah, <laughs> and for nine months, I have to put up with that crap. So when it came to dealing with Sharon, I thought what would be interesting was rather than, again, come up with some plot and now she has to talk to other characters and move that plot along, Mm -hmm. was showing her living her life. Yeah. Just in these two random days. Mm -hmm. Not a a big day in her life, not like the premiere of Rosemary's Baby. Right. Or, you know, or, you know, she's shooting the Valley of the Dolls. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that. But just a couple of random days in her life and the idea you know running errands and stuff and the idea kind of being is i'm showing what was robbed from her mm-hmm. is it was it was that, that yeah was, that was stolen yeah it was that that was taken violently mm-hmm. from her yeah and so i thought there was a nice tribute to her it is to it just is. kind of show her living that life that she didn't get to live and but then in writing it, hoping that there would be one incident mm-hmm. that wouldn't break the wouldn't break the idea of her just running errands. Yeah, yeah. All right. But would have a, a more meaningful feeling to it. Right. And the idea of her going to see the wrecking crew. Yeah. All right. Just having a little private moment for herself, I thought yeah. accomplished that. And it's beautiful and it's indulging in that kind of like self discovery and that moment of like, this is really happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's really magical. Working hard on it and then actually seeing the the cause yeah. and effect. It's really cool. You know, because it's a silly stupid movie that she's watching all right but uh uh actually she's very good in it it's like she's she is the movie she is she has a very funny comic thing and i can even imagine her like really practicing that first pratfall Uh you know Uh that she does and Mm -hmm. uh and she's working with like dean martin who's you know acted opposite jerry lewis yeah she's kind of has the jerry lewis role yeah she's the one that's got to is the one that acts like an idiot and she's Mm -hmm. the one that's the clumsy one yeah um and pulling and she pulls it off to a fairly well as Mm -hmm. far as i'm concerned and so the idea of actually watching that and actually having the audience applaud and mm-hmm. and then the idea of her practicing with Bruce Lee and then she actually does the fight with Nancy Kwan, yeah. you know, and the audience actually responds to it. <laughs> it's so great. Mm-hmm. It's so great. And it looks so beautiful too. Like all of the, I was actually, when I was driving through Hollywood while you were shooting, I saw like the Pussycat Theater, everything yeah, yeah, yeah. that was, and it really looked like wild in the streets. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And like this is actually like, this is coming to life, wild mm-hmm. in the streets. The colors yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and 
and the tones of like just of the different shapes and the costumes and the people. It was interesting when we went to okay, what streets were we going to redo? What mm-hmm. streets were, were, were we going to make over? And it was one of those things where it's like it has to have enough big landmarks that right. were there then mm-hmm. to make it worth the while. Mm-hmm. All right. And it can't have anything too horribly big and new mm-hmm. that's just fucks up the entire thing. Yeah. At least, I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to, it doesn't mean that the street can never be touched, but we have to be able to either camouflage it, yeah. either turn it into something else or put something else in the way that you can see it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you put a bus there and you don't see the Apollo Loco, mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, or we can add some things that weren't there but are yeah. pro- uh, period appropriate, like maybe a uh, Pioneer Chicken sign oh, yeah, or something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. And then there's enough little things that who who knows what was there then and who cares what's there now. Yeah. We can turn it into a head shop. We right. can turn it into a little record store. Yeah, yeah. We can turn it into stuff like that. So like you know, really the big areas that we could do that with, and I had one shot that I ended up having to take out, but it kills me because we did such a good job. But the two big areas that we were truly, truly able to do that with was Hollywood Boulevard Mm -hmm. because those theater marquees, even though they're not theaters anymore, they've kept the marquees and we, it was, and, 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 uh, and we didn't play fast and loose. We, we literally, what was playing and it was February 8th, I guess it is, you know, February 8th, 1969, Mm -hmm. what was at the Vogue was the night they raided Minsky's. Yeah. So we put that up there. That's great. That's so great. And then all the billboards for the movies and the uh, billboards for, and the, the, the bus stops and everything were all Mm -hmm. stuff that was either local television at that time, Mm -hmm. you know, in Los Angeles or they were the movies that were coming out. Candy was coming out. Boston Strangler was coming out. But the other street, and we, I w- wasn't able to use the shot that like shows it off. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Riverside Drive, mm. the whole uh, that whole Foreman area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had an old um, FBI episode, and FBI because they were based out of Burbank Studio, shot all over the valley if they mm-hmm. could. So if you want, if you want what North Hollywood looked like or Toluca Lake yeah. looked like in nineteen <laughs> in nineteen sixty nine. Just watch a couple mm-hmm. big va- no, no, I say I'm saying big valley, I'm in FBI. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you watch FBI episodes. I love it. And so there's this one that w- again, it was one of those things where it's like, oh shit, enough is still here. Mm-hmm. From then, okay, maybe okay. The furniture store is now a brokerage firm, mm-hmm. but the and it's painted differently, but the architecture is exactly the same. Yeah. And so if we just paint it back to the furniture store, we're in. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then like, you know, and the, the foreman bar was there. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, and so we just kind of changed stuff around and it, it looked great. All of it was good. I mean, I loved the Spawn Ranch too. And you always think that, I always thought that Bruce Dern would be on Spawn Ranch anyway. Like, yeah, I think yeah. that's George Spawn. Yeah. Like, in my mind, yeah. that's who it is. So yeah, he's it's perfect. Just, if you have an idea of Bruce. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I always wish he's lying in a bed. Like, yeah. I always hope that if I ever do a scene with Bruce Dern, right, he's yeah. lying in bed. Well, I think one of the reasons, like, Bruce <laughs> likes to work with me now, well, we, get a, we have a good time. Also, he's like a... He's always quizzing me, mm. all right, whenever we work together, you know, because he's testing my knowledge. And so, like, when, you know, he'll come up with an actor or an actress from that period, and he'll just throw it out to me, and it's my job to come up with three movies they did, boom, oh, boom, 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 wow. uh-huh. like right there, not come back later. Yeah, yeah. All right, you know. Catherine Spock. Okay, boom, boom, boom. (laughs) Downhill racer. That's fast. That's fast. Um... So he's always doing that, but the but the other reason, aside from the fact that he likes my dialogue, is for the last the the three times I've worked with him, mm-hmm. is yeah, he doesn't walk. 
Yeah. He doesn't move. Yeah. All right. You know, he's he's in his little wheelchair in Django. So mm-hmm. he just is wheeled around. He doesn't yeah. have to walk. It's perfect. All right. He's in that chair mm-hmm. for, through all of Hateful Eight. Yeah. He's the only person in Hateful Eight never gets out of the chair. Yeah. Until he gets shot. Yeah. You know, and he's just never gets out of the bed. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's like it's like the perfect setting for him. But in Spawn Ranch, just like laying in the bed and I, right. I loved Spawn Ranch and I love all of the all of the people, the Manson family, Manson himself. Very good. Yeah. All of them. I, and I love Oh, me. I couldn't be. I, 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 I love it. I couldn't be. I couldn't be happier with so uh, good. Uh, how all of them worked out, and especially uh, especially the kids at Spawn Ranch. They're so great. They were terrific. It was actually kind of it was it was interesting because they were actually really really incredible. For the one of the things about them, is, one of the things about them was just even them being young people. I don't know if this is the this way for Chicago actors. I don't know if this is the way for Los, uh, for uh, New York actors, but you know, going back to that time young hollywood actors oftentimes depending on how young you are have this romanticism mm-hmm. about the manson family yeah and yeah. and just the whole romanticism of, of hollywood at that time mm-hmm. and the part of the, the you know the zeitgeist and the uh, uh uh dark subculture of it all right because it's just very los angeles yeah and so so i cast them I almost didn't have to direct them at all. They mm-hmm. did all their own research. Yeah. And I encouraged that in the in the auditions. For instance, like I wasn't able to give out scenes mm-hmm. for a lot of the scenes that they would do. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of scenes I could give out. I could give out the squeaky scenes and I could give out the pussycat scenes. Yes. And so I would have, uh, when it comes to the gals, mm-hmm. uh, I would have them come and I would have them either read one or one or the other scenes. Mm-hmm. So literally, I saw every young actress in town and yeah, read yeah. the Pussycat scenes. No, not even just for Pussycat, just to find which other role they could play. Right, right. Like, oh, okay, no, she's more of a Sadie. Oh, no, yeah. she's more of a uh, a Katie. She's kind of mm-hmm. more of a snake. Mm-hmm. So from how they did those parts, mm-hmm. all right, so uh, then I'd bring them back for a, a callback. And then in the callback, they'd do it again. But then I said, okay, so... Now also, now I want you to do a monologue of whichever Manson character you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you you want to do the monologue of. Mm-hmm. So you just need to come here and talk to me. Yeah. As that. Oh, character, that's cool. That's really cool. You know, and some of them wrote poems. Some of them mm. uh, uh, um, uh, wrote about the first time they met Charlie. Mm. Some of them uh, wrote uh, correspondence that they did with Charlie. Oh, that's amazing. Mikey Madsen, who played uh, Sadie, played Susan Atkins, yeah. did this like wild painting. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that it was very Basquiat, and it's, yeah. it's like it's all for Charlie. She has a whole poem for Charlie at the end. She cuts off a lock of her hair and stapled it to the painting. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, and when the whole movie was over, like, look, I'm keeping that painting. So, yeah. well, I, it was for you. Yeah. All right, I'm saying it's for Charlie. It's for you. That's great. <laughs> but the thing is, though. But they, they they figured out they figured out all their relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they didn't have a if they if they didn't have a Manson nickname, I gave them a Manson nickname. Yeah, yeah. So they all had their nicknames and everything. And so once I was doing once I was actually at the Spawn Ranch, mm-hmm. we just had all the Manson kids there. Because, yeah. Because it's we didn't know how long it was going to take us. We right. figured about two weeks or so. Yeah. But I kind of needed them all there in case mm-hmm. like w- weird weather things happen. I have to jump around. Yeah. I want to shoot it in order. Yeah. So things can just build mm-hmm. as they build. But because of that, they were just always there. So they just were always in character. They made the Spawn Ranch their own. All that weird 
homeopathic where they 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 they, they whirl and dance around and yeah. hug each other yeah. and all that shit. They they just did that all themselves. Yeah, they did that all the time. And, you mm-hmm. know, like when you even see like a um, like the way Lena Dunham and and Margaret Qualley are in the movie, the way they're just touching each other and fondling yeah. each other and stroking each other. Yeah. I didn't tell them to do that. Yeah, that's just that's. But but if you've watched the the Manson movies, that is how that's they, what they were doing. That's what yeah. they were doing. Mm-hmm. And they just they knew to do that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was like the most prepared group of of young actors that had really gotten in touch with their characters I'd ever seen. So I felt like um, it was like the first time as a director, I felt like I was like their volleyball coach. Yeah, yeah. It was like a, it was a really great. I like, felt like team I was effort. their. I felt like they I was winning. their coach, and then they were this magnificent team. They were great. And then we would just <laughs> go and just fucking kill it at the, yes. at this auditorium or this gymnasium or that gymnasium. And I was just so proud of them, like a, like a like a great coach. Yeah. And I was hoping that though that this would be a wonderful life experience for them that they take yes. on. Yeah. And think about it for the rest of your lives. I love it. Well, we've had a great experience here. I'm so glad that we got to talk. I haven't seen you. You didn't talk enough, though, all right? I, I felt like I, I, I just, you, you winded me up and gave me subjects that were right up my alley. And so well, thus I just demonstratized everything. No, but we can talk about these movies. I mean, this movie, all of your movies and movies in general forever. Mm-hmm. And it's great. I mean, are you really done making movies? Well, I still have the 10th one. To go. <laughs> oh, one more. Yeah, one more, one more. Okay, one more. And then, um, and so, you, are you started? You start already, or you're like, no, no. I, I, I this is gonna be my my last feature film for like a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think you know, mm-hmm. at least four years. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great being here. So great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Margaret. Never miss an episode of The Margaret Show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Margaret Show is an Erios production with editing by Kat Hong and original music by Garrison Starr. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.